Well, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Hiro Onada, but after today, I'm not sure you'll ever forget the name, or at least you won't forget his story. Here's a picture of, of Hiro. On the left-hand side is him in, uh, taken during World War II as an intelligence officer in the Japanese army. On the right-hand side is Hiro, uh, almost 30 years after World War II was over, finally surrendering to the opposition. You might be like, what is that all about? Well, Hero was trained as an elite intelligence officer in the commando class of the Japanese army. He was sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines in December of 1944, and he was ordered to do all he could to protect the island from enemy attacks and also ordered under no circumstance was he to ever surrender. Well, less than a year after his arrival, February 28th, 1945, U.S. forces landed on the island, overpowered the Japanese army, killing or capturing all the soldiers except Onada and three other men who he ordered to retreat into the hills. For months, Onada and these three soldiers held their ground, refusing to surrender. They used their guerrilla warfare training to stay alive, and they continued to fight for protecting this island that uh, was under their command. Seven months later, September 1945, Japan had surrendered. The war was over, but Onada and his men refused to believe it. By 1949, four years after the war had ended, four years after their hiding, all four soldiers remained in the hills. They, they made every effort, the uh, Japanese did and the, Philippine, uh, the Filipino people, to inform these men that the war was over. They dropped leaflets from, from airplanes, but believing it was propaganda, these men refused to surrender. Eventually, one of the four soldiers had enough. He left the other three men, surrendered to the Filipino authorities. But by 1952, now seven years after the war was over, the other three remained steadfast in their position. Family pictures and letters were dropped to them, begging them to surrender, trying to convince them the war was over. But they concluded it was a trick from the enemy and kept up their hiding. By 1954, search parties were sent into the hills to find these men. During one of those searches, one of the remaining uh, three so uh, four soldiers was shot and killed when he engaged in warfare, thinking it was the enemy coming to look for him. Onada, and now the last soldier, continued to stay in hiding avoiding or engaging those search parties with warfare. They did this until 1972 when the third soldier was shot and killed by Filipino police. Onada was now alone in the hills and he continued his hiding for two more years all by himself until finally a Japanese citizen named Norio Suzuki went looking for Onada and found him on February 20th, 1974. Suzuki tried convincing Onada that the war was over, that he could surrender, but he still refused to believe and said he would not come out of hiding, he would not surrender until he received orders from his commanding officer. So Suzuki goes back to Japan 
with photos of himself and Onada, the Japanese government happened to locate his commanding officer, flew him to the Philippines, where he went up into the hills and officially relieved Onada from his duty on March 9th, 1974. 29 years after his retreat into the hills, Hiro Onada finally surrendered. Here's a picture of him following his surrender. He's actually walking out of the jungle with his sword still in his left hand. He still had his army-issued rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition and several hand grenades he was ready to use on people who came looking for him. 30 years of his life was gone. 30 years where he could have been with family, could have been with friends. 30 years of potential freedom was gone. Two of those men that were with him lost their lives because they didn't believe the war was finished. And here's how this applies to us and our message today. Something has been finished for us as well. But when we refuse to believe that it is finished, we will never experience all we are invited to experience either in this life or in the life to come. If you're new here, by the way, my name is Jeff Manis. I am the lead pastor here. And for everyone who is with us, whether you're live in the auditorium or joining us on video or in one of our video services later today, I am so glad that all of you are here. Week number six of a seven-week sermon series we are in called Seven, and we're walking through the final seven statements of Jesus from the cross. I do want to let you know uh, that that means in two weeks we're starting a brand new sermon series on Easter Sunday called Even so. And in this message, uh, in the series, we're going to look at how do we respond when life doesn't go our way? How should we respond when life doesn't go our way? I think it's pretty relevant uh, to all of our lives. We do have special Easter service times, uh, so we're not doing our 6 p.m. service, but we are doing our three morning services, 8.30, 10, 11.30, and then adding a 1 p.m. service on Easter, no 6 p.m., and we'll go back to our regular schedule uh, the following week. There are some information and invite cards at the doors on your way out. Easter's a great time to invite somebody to come, especially in a series like this that I think really will be impactful for all of us, talking about what we should do when life doesn't go our way. I don't have time to recap everything we've talked about in the series so far. If you've missed any of the sermons, go to our website, click on the watch button on the top, and you can get caught up. The first three statements uh, were all external ones made by Jesus, focusing on the needs of others. Two weeks ago, Pastor Andy did a great job teaching us, walking us through that very personal, very agonizing statement from Jesus to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Today, we are picking up right where Taylor left off last week in the Gospel of John. And by the way, I feel like both Taylor and Andy did an amazing job with their sermons. I think we should show them some honor today. Great job. I, I do love preaching, but I also love receiving. And I was on the receiving end of some of those two great sermons. I love the fact that we have other people on our staff that I can entrust the pulpit to and know they're going to do a, a fantastic job uh, delivering God's word to you. 
The main scripture today is John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. So if you've got your Bibles or a Bible on a device, turn to John chapter 19. All of the scriptures and everything I read will be on the screens as well. If you don't own a Bible, you can ask for one for free out in the lobby, and we'll get you a Bible today free of charge. John is the fourth book. In the New Testament portion of the Bible, written by a man named John, super creative title we give it to the books of the Bible, uh, John was one of the 12 original apostles of Jesus, and, and John was the only apostle, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a few other women that are listed being at the foot of the cross when Jesus makes these seven statements. Now, let's not forget the picture of what's happening here, okay? The gravity of what's taking place. That, that here now is Jesus, the, the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God. God in the flesh has now been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's been tortured and beaten to within an inch of his life. And now he is nailed to a cross for the sins of all the world. And while in excruciating pain, and overwhelming, agonizing pain, spiritually and emotionally, he musters up the strength to speak seven statements from the cross. Seven very important, I believe, very strategic statements to us. John 19, 28 through 30. We're going to kind of read kind of the tail end of where Taylor was last week and then the words for this week. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. Everyone say finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. That's the statement Taylor did so well with last week. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, and now the sixth of seven statements, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He surrendered his life. Those three words in the English language, it is finished, actually come from just one Greek word, which Greek is the language this would have been written in by John. That one Greek word's on the screens, it's tetelestai, tetelestai. And the most powerful part of this word is not just the definition, it is finished, the most powerful part is also, it was written in what's called the perfect tense. In the Greek language, that means there's no, no time bound to the way this word is used. It, it literally means it is completed in past action, it is fulfilled in the present, and it has future implications. So Jesus, if he was speaking in English, literally could have said it this way. My work has been done, my work is done, and my work will be done. It is all finished. Is that not awesome? All of it is finished, Jesus said. Well, what was finished? I think it's his mission. It says he knew his mission was complete. But it's, it's so much more personal and so much more powerful than just his mission was complete. Yes, his mission was finished, but his mission was done so we could experience what we do not deserve. In fact, that's the big idea for today. It's on the screens if you want to write it down. It's this. Jesus finished what we could not do 
so we could experience what we do not deserve. I'll say it's good because that's good. Jesus finished what we could not do. We couldn't die for our own sins. He finished it so we could experience what we do not deserve, which is life in him. So we have to ask this question, what did Jesus finish? It's a big question. What did he finish on the cross? If you're here today, by the way, and you don't believe in God or you don't believe Jesus is God, I'm not going to lie, and I'm not saying this boastfully, but I feel like we're presenting some pretty compelling evidence today that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. But whether you believe that, whether you ever believe that, please know you are loved here, and we love it that you are here. And the reality is, I can't prove God to you. I can't prove that God exists. I can't prove that Jesus is God. At my very best, all I can do is perhaps bring you to a place where the two of you might have an encounter, where the two of you might meet. And that's my hope for us today. Believer, unbeliever, uh, my, my, my prayer is that by the end of our time together, we would each have an encounter with the living God, an encounter with God through the man Jesus So what did Jesus finish on the cross? The first thing he finished is this. He finished the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. Some of you are like, I am so excited now to hear this. You're really going to convince me. Hang with me, okay? The Old Testament, or what you might call the Jewish scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, They are filled with prophecies from God concerning the coming of a Messiah, the coming of a king that would once and for all save people from their sins, establish his eternal kingdom, and rule over people by being a good and loving king. In fact, there are over 300 references to 61 specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of this Messiah, this this king. In Mark 14, when Christ was arrested, he himself even said, there are certain things happening in order to fulfill these prophecies. Mark 14, 49. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says this, Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Now, some of the prophecies that were spoken, surely if you knew what the prophecies were, you might finagle your way into making them happen in your life. But most, many, if not most, of the prophecies were literally outside of of any man's control. Prophecies like the place where he'd be born, Bethlehem, uh, born of a virgin, uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, even, even on the cross, things like the soldiers casting uh, lots for his clothes or offering him sour wine to drink, all those and many others were completely outside of his control. So all total, Jesus fulfilled the 61 specific prophecies that were referenced over 300 times in the Old Testament. All of them were written hundreds of years before his birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Now, super weird transition here, but but hang with me. I promise you I'm going somewhere. By show of hands, who here hates math? My hand is up, okay? Okay. Now, put your hands down. 
By show of hands, anyone here love math? You just like. Can we pause and pray for our deceived brothers and sisters? <laughs> you have wandered away from the truth of God. <laughs> just kidding, kind of. I hate math. Like, I hate it. I hate math. Uh, but we're about to see my, one, of, one of our daughters almost every day comes home from school and says, how am I ever going to apply this to my life? Okay. Well, we're going to apply math to our spiritual lives. Are you ready? If you're ready, say ready. Okay. There was a mathematician decades ago, a professor of mathematics, his name's Peter Stoner. He wanted to figure out, you got to be stoned to like math, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that was funny right there. Shame on me. So this professor of mathematics, he wanted to figure out what are the odds of one person fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. So using his collegiate students in the project, they calculated what it would take for one person to fulfill just eight of the 61 prophecies. The American Association, uh, the American Scientific Association then validated his research as saying, yes, this, this is the odds of it happening. The odds of one person fulfilling eight numbers on the screen, one in 10 to the 17th power, or one in 100 quadrillion. Basically, the odds that I would ever cheer for the Patriots or like cats is that number right there. Can I get a witness up in this place today? It's never going to happen. So he wanted to illustrate it. And so he said, he said, that number is the same as if you cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Mark one silver dollar with a red X, randomly drop it from an airplane anywhere over Texas, stir the silver dollars completely, blindfold one person, let them walk as far or as long as they want, and one time, whenever they want to, can bend down, put their hand in the two feet deep of silver dollars, pull out one. If they pull out the one with the red X on it, it's the same probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. So he went further. What would it be to fulfill 48 of the 61 prophecies? There's the number on the screen. One in 10 to the 157th power, or one with 157 zeros after it. I couldn't even fit it on the screen. I won't even give you the illustration he came up with because it made my brain hurt and reminded me of why I hate math so much. <laughs> the number is actually so large, human, human minds can't even begin to comprehend it. Statisticians say that after the 50th power, after 50 zeros, the probability of something happening is so small, it would be impossible even for us to imagine that it could ever occur. And yet 48 prophecies has 157 zeros after it, so statisticians conclude not only is that improbable, it is statistically impossible to happen. And how many did Christ fulfill? All 61 prophecies referenced over 300 times in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The chance of that happening is beyond mathematical possibility. So, Jesus either 
pulled off the greatest magic trick of all time, the greatest hoax of all time, or Jesus is who he says he is. God in the flesh, promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, you might say, well, aren't there still prophecies yet to be fulfilled? Absolutely there are, and that's where this gets really powerful and personal, because prophecies to come are about the return of Christ and the end of the world, and that by faith in him, we will live forever with him in the new heaven and the new earth, and why can we believe that? Well, because of what Jesus fulfilled in prophecy, I can fully trust in what the future promise is. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was literally saying, you can trust me. All prophecy has been fulfilled. My work has been done, my work is done, and my work will be done for you. It is all finished. It's all finished. That I can trust what Jesus said will come because he fulfilled what was said about his coming. Or, or, I can hide out in the mountains wondering if it's actually been finished. Jesus finished what we could not do so we could gain what we do not deserve. So what did he finish on the cross? Fulfillment of prophecy. By faith, I can trust the future because he fulfilled what was said in the past. Second thing he finishes this, the fight against Satan. The fight against Satan. <clears throat> For 33 years of his life, his earthly life, Jesus was in a fight with Satan. I mean, you look at his life from, from birth to, to his earthly grave before he rose from the dead, like Satan was constantly trying to get to Jesus, to sidetrack Jesus, to distract him, to derail him, to destroy him before his time. But now, in this moment on the cross, in the moment of Christ's greatest pain, he was displaying the full weight of his power. Perhaps Satan in this moment thought he had won. We don't know. But perhaps he thought he won when in reality Christ was sealing his fate. 1 John 3 verse 8 says this about ourselves and the Lord. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God, Jesus, came to destroy the works of the devil. Now we read that and you might be thinking the same thing I think. Like, this is hard to comprehend because it sure seems like the devil is still wreaking havoc on the earth, does it not? So, so yes, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, on the cross, his, his earthly fight against Satan was finished. But also, yes, somehow in God's sovereignty, he still gives Satan some, some, some freedom to cause widespread damage and harm today. So how can this be? Or, or better, better question maybe to ask ourselves, what do we do with that? Like if his fight against Satan was finished, what do we do still with the, 
the fight that remains against, against us. Well, as a follower of Jesus, while the devil might be able to do things to me, and while he might be allowed to, to come against me, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, he has no power over me, and he has no authority to control me. It is finished. It's finished because of what Christ did on the cross. Romans 16, verses 19 and 20. When, if you grew up in, in church youth group like I did a couple decades ago, you might know a song called Romans 16, 19. And if you know it, I'm not going to sing it for you, and I will not do the motions because you'd never want me to be your pastor again. <laughs> but if you know it, you're going to think it when I read it. Romans 16, 19 and 20 says, I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Talking to us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That because Jesus finished his fight with Satan, by faith in him, he enables us to live in freedom from Satan and sin's control. For some of us in the room today, you might need to put a stake in the ground that no longer Satan Will I give you any authority or any power over this area of my life? By faith in Jesus, the blood shed on the cross, and the power of the empty grave, it is all finished. Or, or, you can hide out in the mountains and wonder if it's actually true. Jesus finished what we could not do so we could experience what we do not deserve. So what did he finish on the cross? Fulfillment of prophecy, the fight against Satan, securing our freedom in the process. And the last thing he finished is this. He finished his father's will. He finished his father's will. In our main scripture, we read that Jesus knew his mission was now finished. What was his mission if you go back in the Gospel of John, John records Jesus saying this in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In a few chapters earlier, John 4, 34, Jesus said, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. And what work was that? The work of the cross, obedient to the point of death, finishing the Father's will. And ultimately, what's the will of the Father? I think the ultimate will of the Father is to be in relationship with you and to be in relationship with me. And it cost the life of the Son of God to bring us into that relationship. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants 
everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Almost every week in the series, we've, we've ended the service with worship and communion. We're doing that again today. We're going to begin by singing a song that we introduced last week called Mighty Cross. It's my new favorite worship song right now. The, the chorus says, oh, the cross of Jesus Christ is the reason I'm alive. For his blood has set me free. It will never lose its power for me. That is the big idea for this message that Jesus finished what we could not do so we could experience what we do not deserve. He finished the fulfillment of prophecy that I now can trust what Jesus said will come because he fulfilled what was said about his coming. Even in this song, the last verse talks about the future return and reign of Christ. He finished the fight against Satan. So now by faith in him, he enables us to live in freedom from Satan's control and authority. His blood has set me free. We're going to sing. And he finishes Father's will. What was the Father's will? To be in relationship with you. And through Jesus, he made a way for that to happen. That's why he came. The commentary from Bible.org about this statement says this. Usually a crucified person at the point of death did not have the strength to cry out, but rendered his spirit with a moan. Jesus gave out a loud cry. His cry was not a cry of death, but a cry of victory. He had just won the greatest victory ever by his life of perfect obedience to God and his death on the cross. He had just opened the doors of heaven to humanity. He broke down the wall that separated humanity from God and that deprived them of his good presence. That by his death, the doors of heaven are open. That's what communion represents. The tearing down of walls that separate humanity from the Father. I'm going to ask the band to come out. And we're going to transition into a time of communion and of worship. You do not have to be a member of our church to receive communion. Communion is the representation of the body and blood of Christ. The bread represents his body given for us. The juice represents the blood that was poured out for your sins and for mine. The tearing down of walls, opening the doorway of heaven so we could one day be with him forever. That Jesus finished what we couldn't do on our own so we could experience what we do not deserve. I don't deserve salvation. You don't deserve it. None of us do. The only one that deserved not to die was Jesus. But he willingly went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for you. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that is the reason I'm alive. Communion is a great, a great avenue for us to experience God together.
There's nothing magical about this moment, but it is powerful and spiritual. And if you are not in a relationship with Christ by faith, you can do that in this moment. The, the, the bread and juice don't save you. Jesus saves you. The bread and juice represent that. But by faith in him right now, you can cry out to him. You can say, Jesus, I believe that you are God in the flesh. Died for my sins, rose from the dead. So I, I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of all my sins. Wash me clean, make me new. Live in my heart. I'm turning from the way I have lived. And by your power, I'm going I'm to live a new life. I receive from you salvation. Thanks for loving me, Jesus. I don't get it. But I'm going to love you back as best I can. It's in your name I pray that. Amen. And those, those words don't save you either, by the way. But it's, it's your heart belief in Jesus and your allegiance shift from, from your way to his way. And now his blood counts on your behalf. You can pray that prayer right now. You can use different words. If you do pray to receive Christ today, please let me know about it. Let a staff member know about it. Mark on your connection card. That would be amazing. We're going to sing three songs to close out. All of them deal with this idea of the cross or even the words, it is finished, are in all the songs. And I, I pray that this will be a special moment for us to be reminded that Jesus on the cross said, it is all finished. All of it. You can trust me. You can trust me. Let's pray and then we'll worship and receive communion. God, you are so awesome. Jesus, it boggles my mind that you would die in my, in my place. So right now, it's, oh, we're going to sing about the cross and about your blood and about your resurrection and about your life. And Lord, you deserve all the praise. So Lord, use now your body and blood. Use the bread and juice to remind us of the truth that it's finished. And Lord, I pray our response to you be one of worship and praise and adoration and celebration for you deserve it all. God, we love you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.